Welcome to Integrative Medicine Solutions with Forum Health, the podcast. Our nationwide network of integrative and functional medicine providers believe in a new standard of healthcare, one that creates optimal health by focusing on partnering with you, understanding your needs, learning about your unique health history, and getting to the root cause of your concerns. Using advanced testing, emerging therapies, and the latest technology, Forum Health providers are at the forefront of integrative and functional healthcare for all. Your journey to better health starts here. So today we're talking about the gut. The gut is uh, one of my favorite things to talk about, you know, just under politics. So in our very first class, we looked at a picture that was similar to this. And we were learning how... um, the body assimilates the macronutrients, fats, proteins, and carbohydrates, so we could learn what was good for us and what was bad for us. So this is just a kind of a reminder, and if you're um, not in front of an image, if you pull up an image of the GI tract anatomy, you can see this. So digestion starts in the mouth with um, chewing and amylase. Amylase is the digestive enzyme that breaks starches down into sugar. Um, So this is why we taste sugar in our mouths when we eat pasta, bread, potatoes, things like that. The um, esophagus moves food from the mouth to the stomach. The esophagus is a different kind of tissue than what's in the stomach. And uh, the esophagus has no protection from hydrochloric acid. So you remember we talked about hydrochloric acid. Um, That's in the stomach and that sterilizes your food and allows you to break down your proteins and it tells your gallbladder and your pancreas that you need um, bile and digestive enzymes. The esophagus doesn't have any protection. So when we talk later about um, things like reflux, uh, it will make sense to you how you can have reflux but have low stomach acid at the same time because it only requires one, one tiny little drop of stomach acid in the esophagus to burn like fire because it has no protection. So if I put your hydrochloric acid on this floor, it would eat through the floor. It's incredibly acidic. The stomach just happens to have protection. The stomach um, creates a mucus layer that protects the um, tissues from the hydrochloric acid so that it doesn't actually burn. So in the stomach, you have hydrochloric acid that's sterilizing things. If you have good amount of of hydrochloric acid, you can sterilize your food within 15 minutes. And then um, you're breaking down pieces of food into smaller and smaller pieces. And it's kind of like, a blender, right? By the time your stomach is done um, squeezing the food around and adding liquid to it, it's most it's mostly a liquid that ends up in your small intestine. Um, and that can take anywhere from two to four hours, depending on how much you ate, what you ate, um, what the consistency of that was, how much protein there was. Um, I would say the, um, the average is probably two hours. Um, once your food is done in the stomach, it goes to the small intestine and that's where pancreas releases digestive enzymes and where the gallbladder releases bile. So the digestive enzymes help you break down everything, um, everything really, even fats. You have an enzyme for fats called lipase, but the gallbladder is what releases the bile that lets you actually absorb those fats over into um, your bloodstream. The uh, small intestine is where most of the magic happens. Um, we, we don't talk about the small intestine much because really all it does is digest and absorb 
nutrients and house most of your immune system, but that is a huge part of being human. Um, so that all happens in the small intestine and the small intestine is um, if you laid it out flat, it would cover a tennis court. So the small intestine has lots of um, structures on the inside that increase its surface area. So um, this is a cross section of the small intestine here. If you don't have access to an image, if you think of it like carpet. So carpet, you have these large fibers that stick up from the floor and on top of each large fiber, you have tiny little ones, right? And that's how carpet is made. Um, small intestine is made similarly. Inside of the small intestine, you have the, all of these large uh, protuberances, which are called villi. And on top of those villi, you have microvilli. So it's like the carpet. Those villi are what absorb all of the nutrients. And that's why your body has so many of them is to increase that surface area. Nutrient absorption happens at, with contact at that layer. That um, those villi and microvilli are covered with your epithelial layer. So the epithelial layer is the mucous membrane that, that coats the GI tract from mouth to anus. The epithelial layer is only one cell layer thick, meaning it's microscopic um, and it's incredibly vulnerable. And so when we start talking about things that go wrong in the GI tract, um, this is the primary source of things that go wrong that cause inflammation. Because just on the backside of the villi and the microvilli, you have your immune system. So here's the epithelial lining in here, and here's your immune system. And the only thing that's, um, that's keeping the two separate is that one little epithelial layer. And inside of that um, immune system, which is called the lamina propria, the lamina propria has all kinds of lymph nodes. It has all kinds of B cells and T cells. Um, it has uh, toll-like receptors, which are receptors that can turn on and off inflammation. 70 to 80% of your entire immune system is sitting behind that single cell layer um, coating the GI tract. So if you damage it, the first thing that happens is your immune system notices, your immune system reacts to that. Um, can anybody tell me what the immune system immune system's first response is to some kind of invader? Inflammation, exactly. When you're exposed to some sort of pathogen, the first thing that the immune system does is it releases inflammation. Um, inflammation is a non-selective killer. So if you get a flu virus into your bloodstream, for example, into your respiratory tract, into your bloodstream, then uh, you'll, it'll take time to build an antibody to that flu virus to actually be able to fight that flu virus one-on-one. -on -one. So for the first three or four days, you're making just inflammation and that makes you feel bad, makes your body ache, makes you tired, makes your head ache, um, decreases your appetite, gives you GI upset. Um, all manner of things happen. Um, at about 72 hours, your antibody production gets to a level where the inflammation can start to fall. Um, and so by day five, six, seven, your inflammation is down and you feel better. You're just about over it, right? 
Um, that's why the first three or four days of a cold are always the worst. You sound fine. You look fine. Nobody can else, nobody else can tell you're sick, but you feel terrible. And then you finally get to the antibody stage and that's when your nose starts to run and your throat sounds scratchy and people are like, oh, you're sick. Yeah, been, been, been sick, <laughs> been sick for days because that was the inflammation part. In the GI tract, um, if you have invaders at the, um, at the epithelial lining, the lymphatic tissue will recognize it. The immune system will recognize it and it will generate inflammation. But the problem is that those germs are not in the bloodstream. So how do you make antibodies to something that the rest of your immune system can't get access to, right? So if you had a flu virus in your bloodstream, it would be easy to make an antibody to that. And within three to four days, you would fight off the infection, you would be fine. Well, what happens if they're hiding inside of your small intestine? How do you get antibodies to inside of the small intestine? Remember, the immune system is separated from the inside of the small intestine in this lumen here by that epithelial lining intentionally to protect the bloodstream and the immune system. But if you're going to throw antibodies at a pathogen, you have to be able to access it, meaning you have to have direct contact. So if there is an infection in your small intestine, very, very often you can't make an antibody to it and you can't fight it off. That is especially the case of pathogens that like to live in the small intestine. For example, if your stomach acid levels get low, right? H. pylori, very, very difficult to fight that off. You can make some antibodies, but it never kills it, right? It never eradicates the infection. Um, so what you have over time is this constant source of inflammation that never gets turned off. So you start to feel like you have the flu all the time. Um, it's not quite as bad. Some people do run fever. Some people don't run fever, but your body hurts, your joints ache, your muscles ache, your, you don't tolerate exercise very well, your head hurts, you're irritable, you're apathetic, nothing's exciting. People walk around feeling like this all the time. And the biggest source is things that are happening inside of the GI tract, because that's where 80% of the immune system is. So that's where 80% of your inflammatory potential comes from. Um, so that's what we're talking about. Uh, is how things go wrong in the GI tract and why, and then of course, how we can fix them. So on top of all that inflammation, the small intestine is where all of your nutrients are absorbed. So if there's a lot of inflammation happening in that small intestine, it starts to become very difficult to get nutrients over into the bloodstream. And when you um, absorb nutrients into the bloodstream, so if we could break down that um, those microvilli, if we, if we could break down those tiny little things sticking out over there, the little baby carpet fibers, and lay them out flat, it would look kind of like this. Um, so really ugly set of teeth. That's what it looks like, really ugly set of teeth. These are the epithelial cells themselves. The epithelial cells have um, tight junctions between them. So these are the epithelial cells. These are the tight junctions. To absorb nutrients, the nutrients have to go through the epithelial cell. They can't go around it. They have to go through it because assimilation into human form starts at the epithelial cell and the signaling to the liver starts at the epithelial cell. So it needs to go through the epithelial cell. 
And these cells need to be stuck together tightly um, so that nothing else gets through. What you don't want is a cell sitting over here by itself with this big hole so that a bug can move in, right? A germ, a pathogen, a virus, a bacteria, um, a parasite. Uh, you also would not want an undigested piece of chicken to move because this is inside of the small intestine. This is the immune system. And this is your bloodstream right here. So if I put undigested chicken into my immune system, what's my immune system gonna do? Yeah, it's gonna say, oh, this is bad. So it's gonna attack it. But if I'm letting things get into the bloodstream, I can now make an antibody to that, which is the origin of food allergies. Food allergies come from letting things across the epithelial lining that shouldn't have been let, let across, the immune system seeing it and the immune system responding to it. So if somebody has a peanut allergy, at some point, peanuts crossed a barrier that they should not have crossed, and they were introduced to the immune system, um, and thus you have an antibody to it. So we have several different kinds of food allergies. Um, people with peanut allergies tend to have anaphylactic type reactions, which is where their throat swells and their respiratory tract um, gets very swollen and it becomes difficult to breathe. That's one type. You can also have food antibodies where the antibody response that you make is not throat swelling, but just more inflammation. Um, so those tend to be IgG food antibodies instead of IgE. Um, so we have a variety of different food allergies. So if your throat swells, most people would say you have an allergy. If you develop inflammation, some people would say you don't have an allergy, you just have a sensitivity, which is fine. That just, there's nothing wrong with that distinction. Um, but the point is that you can begin to react to perfectly healthy substances, right? Nothing wrong with chicken. As long as it was raised well and you cooked it nicely, chicken is a perfectly healthy food. Nothing wrong with eggs, nothing wrong with broccoli. But what if your gut looks like this? What if your gut looks like hillbilly teeth instead of nice teeth, right? And you got gas all over the place. Um, this is a source of a lot of disease, a lot of disease. Even deeper, you remember this inflammation that we talked about. What happens to your blood vessels when there's inflammation in the blood vessels all the time? Remember from the cholesterol class? Yeah, you damage the blood vessels, plaque builds up, you have heart attacks, strokes, blockages in your legs, blood clots. That sounds like a lot of people we know, right? Um, did you know that you can attack your own organs with antibodies that are designed for foods? So for example, the protein gliadin looks almost exactly like thyroid protein. So if this is leaky and my immune system is seeing gliadin, which is a part of gluten, then my body can attack my thyroid in response. Casein is the protein in milk, if you remember, and casein looks almost exactly like beta cells in the pancreas. The beta cells make your insulin. So an antibody response to dairy causes type 1 diabetes. So it's not just about having the feeling of inflammation. It's about the risk for developing all known diseases to this point in time, right? Um, what happens to your blood sugar if there's inflammation? 
Yeah, it goes up. Because if there's inflammation, your immune system responds as if you're under threat, right? It responds as if there is stress. And the stress response is to flood the bloodstream with sugar so you can fight or run. But if you do that on a daily basis, then we know that your blood sugar climbs, you're, you become resistant to your own insulin, and you start to develop insulin resistance and diabetes. Well, why couldn't that have started with inflammation at the gut? It does start with inflammation at the gut. We just haven't talked about it yet. We've just talked about inflammation in the abstract. Now we're talking about where exactly that inflammation comes from. Um, and the gut is um, one of the most common places for it to occur. So these cells right here, these epithelial cells, um, they die pretty quickly. They're, they're very busy. They have, a, they have a difficult job. You have to replace these cells every five to seven days. Um, and you replace cells with cholesterol, amino acids, and nutrients, right? So 50% of every cell is cholesterol, 50% is amino acids, and then you have to have nutrients for the actual building process. Uh, if you are not absorbing nutrients very well, then you can have a hard time replacing these cells. If you're under stress and you're not sending blood flow to the GI tract, Remember when you're stressed, you pull blood away from the GI tract and you send it to the lungs, to the eyes, to the brain, to the muscles so that you can run or fight. If the blood's not going to the GI tract, that's when stomach acid levels start to fall and you stop repairing the epithelial layer of the GI tract. So not only do we have big gaps like this, but we also just have dead cells, right? They're just dead, so we're not replacing them. And the more spaces we have, the more room we have for undigested food and for pathogens to move in. The pathogen burden gets even worse when stomach acid gets low because now you can't kill any of the pathogens that are coming in with your food. So the risk for um, really any kind of pathogen ending up in the bloodstream is pretty high. The um, epithelial cells, their primary amino acid is glutamine. So if you've ever done any kind of gut healing, I'm sure you've taken glutamine powder, glutamine capsules, glutamine um, shakes, glutamine in some form. Glutamine is the amino acid that these cells are made out of. Um, so if you have damage to those cells, using glutamine helps to repair. Um, and the other half is, of course, cholesterol. So if you have damage to the gut, you can expect your cholesterol levels to be high on your blood testing. Because when the body senses damaged tissue, it makes extra cholesterol to try to help you fix that, right? Which is what we talked about in the cholesterol class. Um, at about the halfway mark of the small intestine, let me see if I can go back to the original picture. At about the halfway mark, where is my picture? And remember the halfway mark is about 10 feet because it's about, it's about 20 feet in length or an entire tennis court if you laid it out flat. Um, but about halfway through the small intestine, we start to see um, our microbiome. So our microbiome is the good bacteria, yeast, and viruses that um, we house in our GI tract. That's the microbiome. The first 50% of the small intestine is sterile because that's where all your undigested food is. If you had microbiome in the first half of the small intestine, then they would ferment that food and you would be very uncomfortable, which happens um, in some GI tract issues. 
in uh, about the middle of the small intestine, moving all the way through the colon, the colon has, tr the GI tract has trillions and trillions of bacteria. About four pounds of your entire body weight is microbiome. So I think you can take those four pounds off the top. And then your brain, three. And then your breasts, if you're a woman, you weigh a lot less than you think. <laughs> Um, so we have, we have four pounds of bacteria. Um, our, our, the human body is actually 99% microbial DNA, 1% human DNA, 99% microbial DNA. So the question really becomes who's the host and who's the parasite? <laughs> lots and lots and lots of bacteria, which is great. Those, um, those microbes, they are responsible for, from, from very early in life, actually from before you're born, training your immune system to know who's a good guy and who's a bad guy. So there's this communication between your microbiome and the immune system that, it, that is sitting right next to. They communicate with one another through enzymes. They have chemical messengers that they talk to one another with. And that's how you train your GI tract. And the more microbes you're exposed to, the smarter your immune system becomes, right? So we've seen all these studies now that show kids that weren't allowed to have pets play on the floor, play outside. They're more likely to have allergies, asthma, and eczema because their immune system do doesn't know who's a good guy and who's a bad guy. So exposure to microbes is a good thing. And you're exposed to microbes in utero. Um, the, the placenta does not stop transmission of um, microbes. And then through the birth canal, you pick up quite a lot of microbes, right? The um, birth canal is loaded with microbes that you need in the GI tract, lactobacillus bifidobacterium. And then when you're breastfed, um, breast milk is also not sterile. It's loaded with probiotics. And that's where we get the rest of our microbiome. Um, and then when we start crawling and walking, we touch things. We pick things up off the floor, put it in our mouth, suck our fingers, play with the dog, kiss the dog. Um, we get all kinds of microbes from that. That's normal development of a microbiome. Um, takes about two and a half years for the microbiome to be set. And those two and a half years are the two years where you're doing all those things, right? Eating off the floor, breastfeeding, putting things in your mouth, all of that. Um, if you get exposed to um, antibiotics before you're two years of age, just two rounds of antibiotics before age two uh, doubles the risk of obesity. Because if you're exposed to antibiotics before the microbiome is set, before it's finished, sometimes it's detrimental. The microbiome can't ever um, go back to normal, which is a serious problem given, given how freely we pass out antibiotics in the pediatric setting. Um, so anyway, those microbes train your immune system. Um, they also make nutrients for you. You make vitamin K in the microbiome. You make several types of B vitamins in the microbiome. Uh, very important. However, those microbes should stay in the GI tract. Um, they should not leave and get into the bloodstream. So if you have this kind of damage, all the way down into the second half of the small intestine and into the colon, we're talking about four pounds of pathogens, potential pathogens that could get into your immune system and bloodstream and could cause problems. So making sure that the epithelial lining of your GI tract is always in good health is mandatory for preventing um, inflammation. And there's some disease processes that we've known for a long time occur as a consequence of bacterial translocation. 
one of the most common is osteoarthritis. So we've done studies on osteoarthritis and taken samples from the damaged joint and cultured them. And what we find is colon bacteria. So bacteria has left the GI tract through damage and ended up somewhere else in the body and the immune system responds to that with inflammation. Um, so bacterial translocation is also responsible for cirrhosis, um, partly re responsible for cirrhosis. We find gut microbiome, gut bacteria in the liver where it doesn't belong. And if you remember the liver and the small intestine are connected directly um, through the portal vein. So anything that's happening in the small intestine is eventually going to be happening into the um, happening in the liver. So this process right here with all these holes is called leaky gut. Um, or if you want to look it up on the internet to look at um, research studies, it's called intestinal hyperpermeability, meaning there's too much leakiness happening at this lining. There should be things moving across, but it should be well controlled. So there's probably over 70,000 research articles now discussing um, intestinal permeability. Um, at the conference I was at in Chicago, the guy who was talking, uh, Dr. Jim Lavelle, he's brilliant. Um, I've been listening to his stuff for years. He was in functional medicine before functional medicine had a name. Um, and he's a pharmacist, but he said when he first got started, um, there were 20 papers total on leaky gut, intestinal permeability, and how it was tied to inflammation in the body. 20 total. Um, now we're seeing 20 to 100 per day being published, and you, you can't even read them all. We have artificial intelligence reading them to try to process them fast enough to generate a meta-analysis, right? A, a, a broad view of what they're talking about. So, so many articles that a human being can't possibly read them all. Um, and they all say the same thing. When you have permeability at the gut, you have disease everywhere in the body, which is funny because Hippocrates was saying the same thing thousands of years ago. He said that all disease begins in the gut. Certainly contributes. The gut certainly contributes. So um, the diseases that we know are tightly connected to the gut, of course, any kind of autoimmune disease. If your immune system is being constantly stimulated by abnormal circumstances in the gut, then your risk for autoimmune disease is going up every day. Um, Hashimoto's, uh, Crohn's, ulcerative colitis, rheumatoid arthritis, multiple sclerosis, you name it, it's on the list. Also allergies, asthma and eczema, um, which is sort of the allergic triad, right? Those things tend to come together but also heart attacks and strokes and metabolic syndrome and type two diabetes, osteoarthritis. We talked about that. Migraines, migraines are very tightly connected to um, intestinal permeability. Um, and then the things that are harder to define, food sensitivities, chronic fatigue, um, fibromyalgia, right? All of these are also um, associated with intestinal permeability. You can tie basically anything that happens to a human being back to intestinal permeability at some point, whether it was the initial injury or it's an ongoing trigger for inflammation. Um, it's very tightly connected. And that makes sense when you think about modern life and how hard modern life is on the GI tract to begin with. Just about everything we do in modern life targets the gut as a weapon whether it's an intentional weapon or an unintentional weapon. Do you continue with 
the, um, say, the autoimmune diseases, even if you have healed the epithelial cells, so, you know, that end of things are better? Um, that's a good question. It depends on how far along you are in the process. So I have reversed many autoimmune diseases, but I have also caught many too late uh, to be reversed. So it depends on how long it's been going on. For example, um, I have Hashimoto's. I had had Hashimoto's for about 15 years before I even knew that I had Hashimoto's. So by the time I had it, it was really too late to spare the thyroid. The thyroid was mostly damaged. But now my adopted daughter had Graves' disease and uh, she came to me very, she was still, she was under 18 when I met her. Um, and then I ended up adopting her, unofficially adopting her, but she had Graves' disease when I met her. Um, that was over a decade ago. Uh, she doesn't have Graves' disease now. She had never had to have her thyroid taken out. She went on to have babies and perfectly healthy and no problems because we caught it early. Uh, so it depends. Um, it depends on how long it's been going on and if, um, if we've dealt with everything that needs to be dealt with. So it's possible to reverse them, um, and it's also possible to miss them. So kind of the first step would be, though, or an early step would be, is to heal those epithelial cells. Absolutely. Oh. I would say that has to be your first step, because if you're doing all kinds of other things to try to target the autoimmune disease, but you're not calming down the immune system, you, you'll never get it. Gut has to come first. Mm -hmm. And stress. Because stress is a part of the way that you destroy the gut by pulling blood flow away from the GI tract and letting those cells die and be damaged. So I always do both simultaneously. Anyone with autoimmune disease, we do gut and we do stress at exactly the same time. Because if I heal one and not the other, you'll keep destroying it. So we'll get in this cycle uh, where, that we can't escape from. So both of them. Um, I also wanted to talk about wheat for just a second because wheat is always controversial and people want to know, do I have to be gluten-free? How long do I have to be gluten-free? Why do I have to be gluten-free? So I, I did want to talk about modern wheat for a second. Um, so you remember gliadin is the protein that looks similar to your thyroid. And we have an awful lot of thyroid disease in the United States now. One out of every eight Americans has thyroid disease. So the question is, what happened to our wheat? Well, we started hybridizing our wheat um, several decades ago. I think it's been, um, been almost 50 years now that we started hybridizing it. Not only did we hybridize it, but we also irradiated the seeds to change the way that the genes worked. Um, so now we have an incredibly complex um, wheat protein that we didn't have before. So just the number of um, chromosomes went from 14 to 42. So the complexity of the wheat plant went up dramatically by, four, by three to four times, basically. Um, and the harder a protein is to break down, the more the likelihood is that that protein gets into your bloodstream undigested, which makes sense. Um, you don't want undigested proteins in the bloodstream. And if you get them, you can end up with issues. The other problem is one that we've already talked about, and that's glyphosate. So we spray, spray all of our grains in the United States with Roundup at the time of harvest. And because we do it at the time of harvest, there are measurable amounts of Roundup or glyphosate in the products that we consume that have grains in them, including wheat. Wheat is the most ubiquitously used um, grain in the United States. We put wheat in everything and soy. 
and corn and everything. Um, so that's a lot of Roundup exposure and Roundup behaves like an antibiotic um, in the GI tract. It kills your good gut bacteria. It's also very inflammatory. So it damages the epithelial cells directly, um, allowing anything to come in, including this now much more complex gluten protein that's difficult to break down. So celiac disease went up dramatically after this process, but so did non-celiac gluten sensitivity. Um, it's the same process. It just depends on how your immune system happens to respond. Um, but gluten is a source of misery for a lot of people. Sometimes you can completely reverse gluten sensitivity. Um, I did. I've had gluten sensitivity since my early 20s, and I don't have any now, but I choose not to eat it because it's loaded with glyphosate. So if I ate enough of it, I could get it back. I could get the sensitivity back. It's nice to know that I can have an accidental exposure and not be in bed for two days with a migraine. Um, but I don't, I'm not going to go back to eating it anyway. So some people can reverse their sensitivity and some people can't. People with celiac usually can't reverse that, um, that allergic reaction ever, that autoimmune reaction ever. Um, but the problem would be, even if you reversed your sensitivity, how dangerous is it for you to continue to eat modern American wheat with, you know, um, without some sort of control over that system? So we've seen a, a pretty significant increase in GI-related disorders since we started using Roundup and since we hybridized the wheat um, plant itself. Some people who have gluten sensitivity in the United States go over to Italy and it doesn't bother them at all because glyphosate is illegal in Italy and they use einkorn wheat still. They don't use modern American wheat. So the protein itself is different. The plant is different and the glyphosate exposure is different. Of course, there's a lot of things that are illegal over there. Red dye number 40, all kinds of things. Um, so uh, the other thing is, remember when we talked about the little epithelial cells, our little rows of teeth and our tight junctions that hold them together, these tight junctions have a chemical signal called zonulin that tells them to open. Um, zonulin, meaning zone, can talk to these tight zones and tell them to open. The purpose of zonulin is for zonulin to be produced in high amounts when you're an infant and you're breastfeeding. As an infant who's breastfeeding, you're getting all of these immune globulins from your mother's breast milk, and you want those to come in undigested. You want those proteins to get into the bloodstream whole. So zonulin levels get really high, and you open up these, these tight junctions, and those immune globulins can come in undigested, and the body can use those as a part of the immune response. That's normal. That's supposed to happen. At about six months of age, your ability to produce zonulin starts to fall and the junctions start to close again. And that's when we start to feed you, right? At about six months. When um, the gut is all healed up and the breast milk is starting to become very, very sparse with immune globulins and it's more fat and carbohydrates. You can still trigger zonulin production in a grown-up um, at any point in life with biotin. So gliadin of modern wheat can actually turn on zonulin production and you can open up all of these tight junctions as, you, as if you were an infant breastfeeding, but you're not. You're getting all these undigested proteins from your food simply because you're, you're producing zonulin every time you eat gluten. 
that is a test that you can do. You can test yourself to see if you're a zonulin producer when you consume gluten. And that is a good way to know if I reverse this sensitivity, should I ever go back to consuming it or not? Um, and if you're a zonulin producer, I would say definitely not. You would not want to go back to consuming um, gluten because zonulin um, is is very closely connected with all of those diseases that we, we that we talked about um, because it's allowing massive amounts of inflammation to happen in the body at any given time. And when you think about it, uh, if you're a zonulin producer and you eat the standard American diet, there's no time in your day in which your tight junctions are closed, right? Because in a standard American diet, you eat wheat at every meal. For some reason, we have to have bread products at every meal. Um, let's see. So we talked about inflammation. Let's also talk about uh, what happens to the rest of the body when inflammation is happening. So... Um, Remember we have these epithelial cells here and then we have the immune system right back here and then below that is your bloodstream. Your immune system makes several kinds of things. So we've talked about cytokines. Cytokines are inflammation. Cytokines are just what we call the chemical messengers of inflammation. Your immune system also makes histamine. And histamine would be associated with allergies, eczema, asthma, skin rashes, hives, urticaria, whelps, um, dermatitis, things like that. Um, and by allergies, I mean even the seasonal ones, right? Pollen, dog dander, cat dander, that kind of stuff. Well, histamine requires adrenaline. So every time your body makes histamine, your adrenal glands make adrenaline. If you had, um, for example, a peanut allergy and your throat swelled, I would give you an adrenaline shot. I would give you an epinephrine shot, epinephrine, an EpiPen. An EpiPen is just adrenaline in shot form. If you went to the hospital, same thing, we would shoot you up with adrenaline because adrenaline is the counter hormone to histamine but your body does that too. So every time you make histamine, you make adrenaline. Well, every, every time you make adrenaline, you also make cortisol. And every time you make cortisol, you pull blood away from the gut. So now I'm stuck in a cycle here, right? My gut started to fall apart, so my immune system started to react. That brought my adrenal glands into the picture, which keeps pulling blood away from the gut until I'm stuck in this cycle and I can't ever get out. So it could have started with the adrenaline and the cortisol um, with stress, psychological stress or physical stress, or it could have started with the gut. But now the guts pulled that system in and they're both, they're both connected regardless of who started the fire. They're both going to feed it. Um, so this is how it, the system self perpetuates itself. And this of course makes things happen to your body, right? What happens when this is going on underneath the surface? It, definitely inflammation, but what else, what, what directly can you feel from too much adrenaline and cortisol? Your body is worn down, but you're also wired. So the wired and tired feeling, my brain won't shut up. 
So I can't fall asleep, but I'm exhausted. That's the wired and tired feeling. That comes from too much of this. Palpitations, tachycardia, high blood pressure for no reason. No, I'm not stressed. I don't know if my blood pressure is high. Well, you don't know you're stressed, but you are stressed. Um, so it wears your body down as if you're under significant, significant amounts of psychological stress, even if you're not. So it doesn't matter which one came first, the chicken or the egg. Eventually, you're going to have a chicken and an egg. You're going to have a gut problem and an adrenal gland problem. And all of that just continues to perpetuate an inflammatory problem that makes human beings very sick. Um, so it could have started at the gut, could have started with, with the stress. But that's why I said we have to treat both at the same time because they become interconnected no matter how, how it began. And of course, the longer uh, this goes on, the more inflammation and food reactivity that you develop. And so the worse the problem gets, which is why usually people get sicker over time. It'd be nice if we didn't, but we do, right? The body just continues to fall apart until there's some sort of um, intervention Oh, um, fatty liver disease also comes from this same process. So fatty liver, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease has just has bypassed alcoholic liver disease um, in the United States um, as the, the, the number one cause of cirrhosis, which is outrageous. But that fat storage in the liver comes from inflammation. If you remember from Way back in class one or class two, we talked about how mammals store toxins in fat. And if you have all this toxicity happening in the gut and being dumped over into the liver, the liver is going to make fat cells to put those toxins away so that it can deal with your food. And with the thought process that it's going to come back and deal with those toxins when it has time. But every time you empty your small intestine, you empty toxins. So it does it again and it does it again and it does it again until you have a fatty liver. You do not have to be obese to have a fatty liver. I see fatty livers in normal weight people all the time. Certainly, if your body is prone to making fat at the liver to store toxins, it will also make fat everywhere else to store toxins. So the two are connected. But you didn't get fatty liver because you were overweight. You became overweight because you were toxic. And it started at the liver and spread to the rest of the body. Can you test the fatty liver? I mean, how do you know? You, you know based on some sort of imaging. So, I mean, sometimes your liver enzymes go up. And so we go checking the liver to see why that's the case. So you can see it on an ultrasound. You can see it on a CAT scan. Um, we have to do some sort of imaging to see it. All right. So let's see. So we talked about stress a little bit. Um, and how it's connected. Another way that it's connected is your um, immune system has this immune globulin called secretory IgA. Secretory IgA lines the respiratory tract from nose all the way down through the lungs, and it lines the GI tract from mouth, mouth to anus, and it is your first line of defense. So secretory IgA can attack things directly before there's any kind of information being sent out from, from, the, from the brain of the immune system. 
Secretory IGA is why children didn't get COVID very often, or when they did, it was very mild. You have the highest levels of secretory IGA as a child, and it declines over the course of your lifetime. Um, so the more secretory IGA you have, the faster you fight things off and the less likely it is that you get sick, which is why kids just don't get bad flu and COVID infections very often because of secretory IGA. But if you have a lot of stress, um, chronic stress suppresses secretory IGA production, which means that you lose your first line of defense um, through just just through the influence of chronic stress. So losing that blood flow to the GI tract. So not only have you lost the ability to keep your gut healthy, but you've also lost your ability to fight off respiratory infections. Um, and I think we saw the result of that in um, in the COVID response, right? The people who um, got the sickest and ended up with the worst outcomes. All right, so let's talk about dysbiosis for a second. So dysbiosis literally just means bad bugs. That's what dysbiosis means, bad bugs. So you should have four pounds of bacteria, yeast, and viruses, um, and a few other things in the GI tract. Um, but if you have bad bugs, or if you've lost some of the good bugs, then you lose the protection layer. You start to lose the protection layer at the epithelial lining. So at the epithelial lining, your probiotics are housed in a mucus layer. Um, so it's epithelial layer, mucus layer, full of bacteria and microbiome, and then it's the hole where the food is. That's kind of what it looks like. Uh, if the um, good bugs get killed, let's say you took an antibiotic, or you had um, food poisoning. If these guys are killed, not only do they die, but the mucus layer goes out with them, which is why people who have food poisoning tend to have mucusy diarrhea, right? You're, you're losing some of that mucus lining in the, um, in the stool. Uh, and that leaves your epithelial lining bare without protection uh, from whatever is coming in, uh, which is really bad if, um, if, a, if food poisoning is what was coming in. So dysbiosis can um, weaken the layer, the epithelial layer, and leave you more vulnerable. So the most common way to develop dysbiosis in our country is antibiotic exposure. Whether that's antibiotics you got a prescription for, whether that's the chlorine fluoride in your water and toothpaste, whether that's the glyphosate on the food that you're consuming or the other chemicals on the food that you're consuming or the chemicals that you're breathing in in the air. Um, we have a dramatic amount of antibiotic exposure in all of those categories. Uh, so our risk for dysbiosis is very, very high. Um, of course, if your stomach acid is low, then you're at risk for dysbiosis, meaning you bring in bad bugs, right? So if my stomach acid is low, then I can't sterilize my food and therefore I can bring in any number of pathogens. Um, so antibiotics, hydrochloric acid, uh, we already talked about chronic stress, chronic stress breaks down your secretory IgA, which lets all kinds of things move in. What else might contribute to dysbiosis? Remember talking about the genetically modified organisms when we had the food additive class. So a minute ago, I said that wheat, soy, and corn were in everything. Well, wheat is loaded with Roundup, but soy and corn are both genetically modified. 
Um, and they're genetically modified to create Bt toxin in every cell of the plant. Bt toxin acts like an antibiotic. There is no enzyme with which Bt toxin can kill a human, which is why they thought it was fine to do to us. But Bt toxin does interact with the enzyme that all of our gut bacteria produce. And so it's capable of killing good gut bacteria. So leaves you at risk for dysbiosis. And we also talked about our water supply, right? Um, it's chlorinated, it's fluoridated with the intention of killing pathogens. But since we are, we are loaded with and dependent upon microbes, it's important to know what you're doing to your microbes and to, and to mitigate it as much as possible. Processed foods, of course, because what do we process them with? Chemicals, yeah. We don't process them, process them with good purified water at all. Um, having dysbiosis is linked directly to um, abnormal weight gain, obesity, um, high cholesterol, high blood sugar, diabetes. Part of that is because of the inflammation. The other part is, and I think we talked about this last week, that the microbial balance in your GI tract actually um, is responsible for how much sugar you pull across the bloodstream when you're eating. Or maybe we talked about it in the beginning of the um, series. Uh, so they did all these studies on people out at Kaiser Permanente in California, um, looking at the blood sugar response to a banana. Um, every banana has about the same amount of sugar, but every human being's response to that um, banana is different. Um, so they measured everybody's blood sugar response, and then they checked their stool to see what commonalities they had. Um, and what they found was that there was very set patterns of dysbiosis that increased how quickly you get sugar out of your food and thus the glycemic impact of that food. So that banana to you might be completely different than that banana to me and what it does to my blood sugar and thus my insulin and insulin resistance. And that comes directly from the GI tract which is why two rounds of antibiotics before the age of two doubles the risk of obesity because dysbiosis is directly related to obesity, type two diabetes, metabolic syndrome. So what you do to your gut affects literally everything that happens to your body um, from a headache to a heart attack. All right, so let's talk about some other things that can damage the GI tract. On top of processed foods, genetically modified foods and chemicals in the standard American diet, the standard American diet, um, which is sad, um, is also very low fiber. So uh, fiber, remember, is how we feed our microbiome. So if your diet is low in fiber in general, you'll starve them. And when I mean fiber, I mean the insoluble fiber that we can't digest, the things you get from fruits and vegetables and nuts and seeds, um, and, some, and some of the fibers that we can digest from uh, complex carbohydrates. All of those fibers feed the good gut bacteria. What I don't mean is sugar um, or starches that become sugar within 10 minutes because that doesn't help them. Um, but we definitely have to have fiber to keep those microbes alive and healthy. You can change the microbial balance in your gut within 14 days of a dietary change because what you feed them changes their balance. 
if you start to starve the bad ones and feed the good ones, your gut will adjust to that because it has to, because they have to have food to survive. So what you feed the the germs, the microbes, um, that contributes to what it looks like, to what your bacterial balance looks like. So the a probiotic is not the most powerful way to change your microbiome. What you feed your body is the most powerful way to change your microbiome. And it happens a whole lot faster than a, probi a probiotic would ever do it. NSAIDs are another big exposure that we have um, in the modern world. NSAIDs like ibuprofen, um, naproxen, Aleve, aspirin. NSAIDs destroy the epithelial cells. Um, NSAIDs will cause micro ulcers in the small intestine for years before you ever get an ulcer in the stomach. So we all know that NSAIDs can cause an ulcer in the stomach, but it takes years to get an ulcer in the stomach. You have micro ulcers in the small intestine almost from the very beginning of, of daily use of, um, of NSAIDs. And a micro ulceration is nothing more than intestinal permeability, right? I've killed enough epithelial cells that now I've lost my protective barrier. That happens very quick, very quickly with NSAIDs. Um, so NSAIDs are definitely not an approach you would want to use to manage inflammation. You would want to manage inflammation by fixing all the triggers because this will only make the inflammation worse over time, unfortunately. Um, a very self-perpetuating problem. Oral contraceptives and uh, synthetic hormones feed yeast, as do steroids. They feed yeast. And while your body needs yeast um, and um, candida and other yeast species, uh, it should be primarily bacteria. If you start to feed yeast, um, the yeast will switch into their fungal phase and they'll take over the GI tract and cause all manner of problems. Um, so birth control pills, synthetic hormones and steroids are a very common way that we accomplish that in the United States. Um, I, I'm sure all of you have seen mold on bread before, right? Mold does not just live on the surface of bread. It has tentacles that grow all the way through the bread. When in your GI tract, if a yeast species ever converts over to its fungal phase, it can do the same thing. It grows an exoskeleton that can grow tentacles. And those tentacles destroy your epithelial lining, but they also break through that lining and get into the immune system and the bloodstream. So if you have toenail, if you have toenail fungus, it came from the gut. The only place you could get fungus into your toenails from the nail bed. It did not come from the outside, unless you had some serious injury that went through the nail bed. Um, that fungus came from the gut. And the way that it got there is it converted over to its fungal phase and it developed these tentacles and it got out of the gut and got into the rest of the body. If you have constant um, yeast infections anywhere, that came from the gut. It did, it's not, you didn't get a yeast, you didn't get a vaginal yeast infection externally from your body, unless, you know, unless something weird happened. Usually it's from antibiotics, right? And that's internal, that's happening in the gut. And then it left the gut and it got into the rest of your body and it caused problems. Same thing with fungus on the head, athlete's foot, all of these come internally. They're not external. We also talked about um, lectins. Remember when we talked about lectins and um, legumes? 
those things that protect the legumes, the seeds from being broken down so that they can be deposited elsewhere. Um, lectins do have a damaging effect on the epithelial lining, which is why we said if you were going to eat legumes, you wanted to, to soak them or sprout them so that you could break the lectins down and be much more gentle on, um, on the GI tract. The other thing that happens with lectins is lectins trigger histamine release. Remember, histamine then tells the adrenals you need stress hormones, and then you get this self-perpetuating cycle. And people who have allergies, response to pollen, response to dogs, response to whatever, when they get lectins out of their diet, including grains, their allergies get better, even with the pollen still around, even with the dog in the house, because their histamine levels go down. All right, so let's talk about healing it, healing the gut. So first is always eliminate triggers. So if there are things that are damaging your GI tract, not a supplement in the world is going to fix it until you get rid of those things. If you don't get rid of those things, we can't out supplement, out -supplement that, um, which is kind of like out supplementing your diet to lose weight. Not going to happen. Not going to happen with healing the gut either. So we need to eliminate triggers. So the first trigger that I would say is modern wheat. Um, I would get rid of modern wheat right out of the gate. Probably would do you some good to get rid of all wheat in the beginning, since gluten is pretty similar across all of the different wheat species. So if your reactivity came from modern wheat and you just go directly into einkorn wheat, you might still react to the gluten negatively because the body hasn't allowed hasn't been allowed to heal. Sometimes if you get off all wheat for three to six months and you heal the gut, you can go back to eating organic wheat. Sometimes you can't. Um, so I think a good six month time frame of no wheat whatsoever to let the body heal is best for everybody. You wanna soak or sprout your legumes. You wanna avoid all those things we just mentioned, right? So NSAIDs, antibiotics, synthetic hormones, it is actually possible to make it through a winter with no antibiotics, I promise. Um, you, just have to know, you just have to know what actually requires antibiotics and what doesn't. And I'll tell you what doesn't. Um, ear infections, bronchitis, throat infections that aren't strep throat, none of those require antibiotics. 98% of all bronchitis um, infections are viral. 99% um, of all ear infections are viral. Um, ear infections should be watched, not treated. Um, that comes from the American Academy of Pediatrics, not the American Academy of Kimberly, um, because they're viral. There's no reason to use antibiotics for those things. Now, certainly people can develop a secondary bacterial infection, and that's what we're watching for. But you don't have to have antibiotics for any of those things. Throat infection, respiratory infection, these are all, these are all viral. Um, an abscess on your leg or your arm, right? Um, a big abscess that's draining nasty things. Well, you're probably gonna need some topical antibiotics for that. Um, that's bacterial, but nothing that's happening up here is ever bacterial unless you just got sick for way too long um, and usually because you're diabetic. So um, those things you don't have to take antibiotics for. You can also treat strep without antibiotics. And I gave you guys that recipe the other day. So make sure you keep up with the strep recipe. 
I can't think of any, what, why don't some people go to the doctor and end up with steroids and antibiotics? Allergies, not knowing your allergy season, thinking you have a cold when it's your allergy season. I see that a lot. Actually, some people never realize they have allergies. They're like, no, I just get three or four colds every spring. No, no, you don't. <laughs> you have allergies. Some people don't know. They don't realize that. Um, mm -hmm. um, my mom, elderly, um, gets a lot of urinary tract infections. So, you know, we know that her gut's probably not a good mm -hmm. That's what, she, you know, she always gets antibiotics. But if, you know, if it were to get worse, then it Sure. So that's a different, that can be prevented, but it's a different conversation. The reason that that happens to elderly women is because your pelvic floor musculature is controlled by estrogen and progesterone. So in the decade, um, after all that's been gone for a long time, then the pelvic floor loses its strength and your bladder falls and then it sits forward. So every time you urinate, you don't completely enter, empty it. And so you do, you do develop infection from that, but that is treatable without antibiotics, but it depends on what's happening with the patient. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that, that's a different circumstance. Um, let's see, what about probiotics and prebiotics? So probiotics are um, the actual microbes and prebiotics are the fibers that they like to eat. So you can take prebiotics in pill form, but you can also just eat more fiber. And then probiotics come in all different kinds of varieties. And it really kind of depends on what's going on with you. I would say that probably the most potent type of probiotics are soil-based probiotics, um, meaning they're spore formers. And it says that on the bottle. Uh, it'll either say soil-based or it'll say spore former. Um, spore, spore formers survive digestion. So even if you have lots of good hydrochloric acid and you have a really good digestive process, spore forming probiotics will actually make it to the colon and be capable of reproducing there. The other probiotics can't do that. So lactobacillus, bifidobacterium, those, those are dead. Those are dead after they get through your GI tract. I mean, after they get through your stomach, that doesn't mean they don't do good things. They do good things because you remember, I told you that you're microbes talk to your immune system through chemicals. Well, those chemicals are still functional even after you've killed the, the probiotics. Um, so they still do good things. But if you actually need to colonize the colon, the only probiotics that can do that are spore formers because they can actually survive the digestive process. Um, so like we use biospore, Inwell biospore, that's a spore forming probiotic. Garden of Life Primal Defense, that's a spore former. If you have ever followed Josh Axe anything, Dr. Axe uses spore forming probiotics and he also wrote the book, Eat Dirt, um, talking about that same thing. Um, so you definitely want those uh, for most people, I would say. Uh, anybody done bone broth? So bone broth gives you gelatin and collagen, which helps to... Um, repair a damaged gut, uh, gut wall. Um, you also need gelatin and collagen to heal the rest of your body. And typically when you've had a damaged gut, you've not been getting gelatin and collagen because those come from protein and protein are the most difficult things to break down, especially when you have low stomach acid. So bone broth is always a good place to start for healing the gut and reducing inflammation in the rest of the body. Easy to make too and cheap. 
Mm -hmm. What do you think of that? Those are okay. Or the, like even up, even in the cartons. Mm-hmm. Okay. Like kettle and fire. Kettle and fire is a good bone broth. Mm-mm. Mm-mm. You're gonna pay if you get the good ones. Um, you know how expensive kettle and fire are. Um, but yeah, they're still good. You don't have to make your own bone broth anymore, which is wonderful. Um, do you need hydrochloric acid support? So um, I've never really met someone who didn't need hydrochloric acid support. There are people on the planet who um, actually make too much hydrochloric acid. That's what um, Prilosec and Protonics were created for. It was that very, very narrow group of people who have Zollinger-Ellison syndrome where they make too much stomach acid. Um, that's less than 1% of the entire world's population. So I, so I doubt that's going on with you. Um, but if you have any amount of indigestion, reflux, um, dysbiosis, gut-related issues, stress in your life, um, a history of surgery, a his any of those things, you need hydrochloric acid support. So we do that with betaine HCL. And you can get that by itself, or you can get that with digestive enzymes blended together, which is the next thing I was going to say, digestive enzymes. So if your stomach acid is low, remember your um, gallbladder doesn't get the signal to empty and your pancreas doesn't get the signal to empty. So your ability to digest your food is really incredibly hampered. And also your risk of damaging the gallbladder is, um, is going up every day that that's the case. That's how you end up with sludge in the gallbladder and gallstones if you don't tell it to empty every, um, every meal. Quercetin is a good place to start for gut healing as well because quercetin stops histamine production. So if histamine and adrenaline, cortisol, and allergies and eczema are a part of the picture, quercetin will turn down histamine while you're trying to heal the gut. Um, it, it prevents histamine production, which is superior to an antihistamine, which only blocks histamine receptors. So if you take Allegra, for example, you'll block the histamine receptor, but you won't actually stop the histamine production, which means the adrenaline cortisol thing is still happening on the backside. You're just not feeling the drippiness that usually comes with your histamine. So quercetin actually stops the whole thing. Um, it stops the histamine, which stops the adrenaline and cortisol, and it blocks the symptoms that you would get. We also talked about L-glutamine, which is the amino acid that your um, epithelial cells are made out of. So quercetin is anywhere from 500 to 3,000 milligrams a day, depending on what's happening, how bad your allergies are. Uh, it depends on what's going on with you. If you have, if you're early in the process and you have a lot of histamine driven issues, um, let's say your palpitations, high blood pressure, anxiety, um, I would probably put you on um, a thousand milligrams three times a day, maybe 500, three times a day. So yeah, it depends on what's going on. It can be really high dose. And then L-glutamine is somewhere between 4,000 and 10,000 milligrams in a day. So for most, um, for most glutamine products, it's actually labeled in grams. So it'd be from four to 10 grams in a day. Need a lot of glutamine to fix all that damage. Let's see. Yeah, you can either take prebiotics in pill form or you can, um, or you can just eat fiber. 
right? Give, give up the starchy stuff and replace it with fruits and veggies. And yep, you don't have, you don't have to take prebiotics in full form. Zinc carnison is um, good for healing the GI tract, particularly if you've started to develop um, ulcers. If you've been using NSAIDs, you've been developing ulcers. If you've had H. pylori, zinc carnison is really helpful. Um, that's about 75 milligrams twice a day. Um, what about aloe vera? Yeah, it's different. Has to be the carnison um, chelate, not the glycinate or pygolinate. Has to be the carnison chelate. Um, aloe vera, slippery elm, okra, and that's whether you want to eat okra or you want to take okra in pill form. It does come in pill form. Um, these three things put the mucus layer back. So the mucus layer is where the microbes like to live. That's their home. Um, and if you've lost the, the mucus layer, this is a good way to get it back. These don't donate any mucus, but they trigger mucus production. So they trigger the cells in the GI tract that you would think it was producing. It was leaving mucus behind, especially with okra, but that's not what's happening. It's just triggering mucus cell, um, mucus production from those cells. So that gives them their home back. And it also protects the epithelial layer so that you have that layer of mucus protection there. Typically, like if you've ever used um, Total Reset or Glutamine Complete or Glutashield from Orthomolecular, that's L-glutamine, aloe vera, zinc carnison, slippery elm, okra, you know, that's all in one thing, um, which is preferable. All in one thing, not having to take a bunch of things at one time. The other thing that's usually in there is deglycerized licorice. Um, deglycerized licorice is, uh, it also helps with mucus production. It also stimulates more epithelial cell growth. So replacing the cells that have died. Um, you do want it to be deglycerized licorice unless someone's told you otherwise, because plain licorice will raise your blood pressure. If you have, if your blood pressure already, already runs a little bit high, um, you can use plain licorice for, for severe adrenal fatigue because it boosts your energy and your blood pressure and your fluid volume back up. But if you don't have severe adrenal fatigue, it can make your blood pressure go up. So you'd want to be careful with that. Um, phosphatidylcholine is a good one too. We just call that PC because it's shorter to write. Um, phosphatidylcholine is um, basically an amino acid. It's a fat and an amino acid together. Um, you have another phosphatidyl, um, another amino acid with a fat. It's called phosphatidylserine. Phosphatidylserine lowers cortisol. So if you have a lot of histamine and cortisol, I'll also use phosphatidylserine. It lowers it lowers um, cortisol levels, but this helps to rebuild not only the gut itself, but the immune layer that's been usually been inflamed and damaged, and also the brain. Phosphatidylcholine helps with um, brain and nervous cell um, regeneration. And the the GI tract, if you're not aware, the GI tract makes 80% of all your neurotransmitters. So the GI tract has a large amount of nerve cells. 
Um, and those nerve cells can be damaged from this inflammatory process, which is where um, some IBS symptoms come from. Gastroparesis can come from that where the stomach stops emptying. You can get ner nerve cell damage in the GI tract um, from this same inflammatory process. All right, let's see, what else do we have on here? So this is just trivia about gut bacteria. So you have 10 times more bacteria cells than you have human cells. Um, we talked about that. 99% of all the DNA in your body is actually bacterial. Um, the DNA in your micro, mo microbiome communicates with your DNA. Um, so DNA is how your cells are built, right? And if you don't have good DNA production and thus cellular repair, your risk for cancer goes up. And that is, um, that is partly um, influenced by the DNA in your microbiome because they communicate with one another. Um, your microbiome affects fat composition, so body composition, um, along with disease risk and nutrient absorption. We talked about vitamin K production and B vitamin production. Um, when we look at the American microbiome compared to the microbiome of still primitive cultures, so there are still a few cultures left on earth that aren't eating McDonald's, um, we have far fewer bacteria, much lower diversity, and far more pathogenic bacteria in our stool samples than um, those of primitive cultures. Um, we talked about the first two years of life is where we develop our microbiome and all the ways that we do that. Early exposure to antibiotics is linked to asthma, eczema, allergies, obesity, and diabetes. Um, the way that you're fed is tied to the microbiome. So bottle-fed babies colonize clostridium and breastfed babies colonize lactobacillus and bifidobacterium. Clostridium is a pathogenic bacteria. Um, also the way that you're born. So the birth canal has lots of beneficial microbiome. And if you're born by a C-section, you get surgical suite my microbiome instead. So staph, strep, uh, stuff like that. Um, we talked about breast milk has its own microbiome. It's not sterile. Actually, there's no sterile. There's no sterile anything in the body. The brain is not sterile. The kidneys are not sterile. We're, we're covered in, in micro microbes from head to toe, literally. Um, we used to think that there were actually sterile parts in the body, but they're not. We have microbiome everywhere. Um, and actually Alzheimer's is, um, is tightly connected to dysbiosis in the brain where the micro microbes in the brain have been messed up, which comes from the gut. <laughs> All right, any questions about the gut or comments? Um, are, is there, I know there's different tests that you can do, like the stool test, and, but are we getting closer to a test that helps us understand the lining or where our lining is at in our stomach or how, how that? Um, I would say that really the only ways to know that are pretty indirect. So you can check your zonulin. Um, and the higher your zonulin, the more open your tight junctions are. You can check your um, inflammation markers like C-reactive protein tells you how much immune system activity there is primarily at the gut. Um, you, can, you can do tests to see if you have um, 
SIBO, small intestine bacterial overgrowth, which is where bugs live in the small intestine where it doesn't belong. Um, lac the lactulose mannitol test is one way to do that. Usually it's just inferred um, by how much inflammation you have, by how much metabolic derangement you have, by what your symptoms are. And as we treat the gut, those symptoms get better over time. There's not a perfect test. Um, they tried to create this camera thing that you swallow and we still have it, the camera thing that you swallow. Cause you know, when you get a scope, they can see to the stomach and they can see from the rectum to the LARP for the whole large intestine. Nothing can see the small intestine. Um, the problem with the camera is that it doesn't work on a microscopic level. It's only a macroscopic level. So what a camera can normally see, you can see. So if you had big, ugly ulcers in the small intestine or a tumor or bleeding vessel, then sure, that can be seen. But you can't see anything at the microscopic level, which would be the epithelial lining. Um, if you get a, an EGD, an upper scope, they can biopsy the small intestine and send that to the lab and they can tell you what things look like. But by the time it gets there, the epithelial cells don't look like they did when they were still in place. So no, there's no perfect test. You would think with all the technology that we have, there would be a perfect test, but I guarantee you that when the perfect test comes around, it's going to be, it's going to be built on nanotechnology and I'm not going to like it. Don't like nanotechnology. Too many bad things can happen from that. But this is this is at the nano level, right? We're talking about at the microscopic level. So it's hard to test that way um, with anything. Uh, even when we biopsy tumors, we're really only looking at the macroscopic layer. We're not, we really aren't, aren't talking about what's happening from cell to cell communication. So we're just not there yet. Hmm? Um, L, is L glutathione or is it? Glutathione. And is it similar to glutamine? Mm -mm. Glutamine is an amino acid. Glutathione is an antioxidant. Glutathione is um, what your uh, what your liver makes out of sulfur and then uses to detoxify your body. Um, so it's a detoxifying agent. I've been learning more about liposomal and glutathione. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so liposomal glutathione is a way that you can get glutathione across the gut lining um, undisturbed, meaning it's encapsulated in a fat so that it will just go across the gut lining without being broken down, which is you can either do it that way, you can get it intravenously, or you can take acetylated glutathione, which has a hat on it that makes the gut not see it and it gets absorbed that way. Otherwise, if you just took glutathione, you would break it down and it would go back into sulfur and wouldn't be helpful. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Forum Health Podcast. Forum Health is the first nationwide network of integrative and functional medicine providers. To learn more about this topic and to find a Forum Health provider near you, visit forumhealth.com.